Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 432, 432, I think. I'm joined today by Dan Schreiber, who I'm a huge fan of and just loved ch- chatting to. I chatted to Dan, I mean, we've chatted online and that a few times. I've been on his 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 um, Instagram show, we get into all of this, but I chatted to Dan for the Pod Bible launch because Dan and the rest of the No Such Thing as a Fish guys were the cover stars for the last Pod Bible of the year. Um, so head to podbiblemag.com if you want to read up on all that and enjoy that, or head to our YouTube to watch the video of our big big reveal. But straight after that, I recorded this episode with Dan. So it was recorded almost probably two months ago now, around then anyway. But it's a wonderful chat, and Dan's a, f- 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 fascinating guy that... The thing I loved about this chat is I knew a lot about Dan and I'm a fan of a lot about Dan, but honestly, almost everything we talked about here, I had very little knowledge of and it was absolutely fascinating. So yeah, let's get into the podcast. Obviously, if you want to head over to speechdevelopmentrecords.com, you can buy merch. We mentioned my Distraction Pieces book. Uh, You can buy that, Time's Best Seller. You can get that over at at speechdevelopmentrecords.com and you can support on Patreon as well. But um, for now, this is episode 432 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the wonderful Mr. Dan Schreiber. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction it's funny because you were, were saying then I was, I was around my mum's last week and she was having issues with her phone and I looked on her phone and I realised the reason she was having issues is she didn't know that she wasn't de- deleting any of the podcasts after she listened to them. So she had about <laughs> 150 of yours on there, at least 100 off menu, um, at least 100 off the beat and track. And I'm like... That's why you're having problems with your phone. You've, wow. You're literally rammed with podcasts. So, Butch is a proper podcast listener. I deleted all of them and, and now it's 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 flying. Um, but yeah, I'm joined today by Dan Schreiber. How are you, man? Yeah, I'm good, bud. So nice to speak to you. It's good. We were talking earlier today because you and the No Such Thing as a Fish Gang are the cover stars of December's Pod Bible magazine and... As you and me were kind of organising it all, I was like, I've been meaning to have you on distraction pieces for a while. Let's just double up and uh, and and get a chat in. I thought if I've got if I've got a block of your schedule, I can uh, I can exploit it. Yeah, well, honoured to be on. I've I've been listening to you since we started, um, and you've been a huge inspiration. I was saying to you earlier, your book when it came out that was a real game changer because it kind of showed that this was more than just a podcast world once you start your podcast that you can you can go into these other places and um i've got it on me here i I keep it yeah yeah i keep it sort of um you know i have a shelf where i keep books that i constantly look at to go as reminders for keeping track of things that i'm doing there There we are yeah remember getting it the day it came out Um, it's a funny one man because i think obviously i'm always going to be all self-deprecating and stuff but i think I felt it's it it didn't feel like a big deal 
or a game changer until it became a Times bestseller. And then it felt, oh, right, well, this is an actual thing. At first, it felt like it's cool that there's a publisher interested, but we're probably not going to sell any. And in reality, you can self-publish a book or whatever else. So it didn't, I think I, I played it down to myself, but it was when it was actually, it sold well in that first week and stuff that I was like, oh, right, well, this this is a good thing because it, it it shows that you can, as you say, you can do more than, it be more than just here's a podcast. There's, there's other ways of doing it. And I think that comes from years of touring and mm. knowing that in the music industry, you have to find any way you can to, to monetize this shit because no one pays for music anymore and you, yeah. can't, you can't turn a profit. So as soon as I was over in podcasts, I was like, right, I'll do some podcast merch. I'll do this. I'll do that. And it's like, all right, it seemed natural to me. <laughs> that was the big lesson for us as well, was that there's only so many times people are interested in saying they've got a podcast because you're just a weekly show where you're doing the same thing. And we realized yeah. if you did a few bizarre things, like we released a vinyl uh, yeah. with a special episode on it, that was a reason for people to talk about us. And we ended up going on the one show to promote that, you know, and Amazing. you wouldn't get on there for other reasons. And so we realized not only is it a fun playground, but anything where you can get because it's fine the books will do what they do and and a vinyl will only sell so much but you're suddenly on the one show where they're going ah it's the podcast no such thing as a fish and that's the gold moment that you want because all we want right is people coming back to this main world of ours which is for us this weekly podcast and yeah it's just great that the playground to get you more listeners is as fun as releasing vinyls and going on tour and it's, yeah, it's wicked. Exactly. And I love that outlook and realising that it's not necessarily about the thing. It's about what conversations the thing prompts. Yeah. An example I always give, I had, I had someone recently, um, I, I won't say who because they're a dear friend, but it sounds as if they're having a go, um, <laughs> kind of laugh at me because cause when I did the video for a song of mine called Introduction, I cut my beard off and I eBayed the beard cuttings mm. so you could have <laughs> have my beard in a little bag and they kind of j- joke saying yeah but you'll sell anything you sold the beard cuttings in reality i never s- sent those beard cuttings out because the highest bids got s- silly it was clear the person had panicked but the press it got me was far more valuable than the, the, the actual selling it was reported in the nme it was reported in all sorts of things <laughs> of scroobius is selling his beard yeah so again yeah it's not about the i think it went up to like a few hundred quid to buy my beard cuttings and it's not about that that few hundred quid it's about the promo yeah that that few hundred quid actually gets you which is in reality worth thousands and thousands you know exactly and it's all just driving it towards this quite humble little thing in our case for dorks chatting and in your case amazing interviews with interesting people it's uh yeah yeah, at least it's driving it somewhere good not sinister Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I, I wanted to have you on here because I've been a fan of you for a while. I've been on your show, as your shit show, mm. on Instagram Live. Um, I've listened to No Such Thing as a Fish, and we've chatted numerous times. But when I started researching this, it made me realise I don't know that much about you. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. kind of apologies for any old ground that gets covered here, but there's loads I want to g- get into, but... I guess starting, there's two start points for our interactions. And one is the launch the day of Pod Bible magazine, which yeah. which we discussed earlier in the Pod Bible chat. But me and Stu Whiffin in particular, we got the train home after that. 
and we were so, so excited that you that you had come out to get a copy of Prod Bible <laughs> off of us because you were in the magazine because my mum had had picked you yeah. and no such thing as a fish is her favourite podcast and you'd come out and supported and it was like it Pod Bible was a massive gamble on our part because there were there there are no podcast magazines yeah a, f- a physical magazine feels like a weird thing in a digital age but it felt like it fit the demographic of podcast listeners. So that launch day was exciting, but wrought with nerves. And to have one of the big podcasts come out and support in that genuine way meant the world. So yeah, that was an exciting meeting for us. That's amazing to hear. I mean, I never would have thought that that would have that kind of uh, emotion from you because I came as a fan. I also came as someone who... I was in love with the idea. I just thought this is such a brilliant idea. It's such a community idea. Prior to doing podcasts, I was doing a lot of stand-up and it's just the most fun going into the green rooms and hanging with all the comics. And it's and then Edinburgh Festival being this extraordinary yeah. month where it's summer camp and you just all hang out. And podcasting doesn't quite have that because we're all in our homes doing these pods. And (laughs) so anytime where it feels like there's a moment to meet someone else who does the same thing that I've been doing, and I've made a lot of friends who were podcasters. I'm I'm very good friends with uh, the My Dad Wrote a Porno team to the point where Jamie, the the son of Rocky Flintstone. He's the godfather to my child. Like we oh, become wow. that good of buddies and, and Alice and James are really good friends. And Helen Zaltzman, who was a huge hero as yeah. well. She was sort of the real, I don't know if you predated her. I don't think you did with no, Answer Me This. So. Yeah. I think I mean, she was the yeah. real kind of like patient zero of yeah. British podcasting. We become really good friends. I love, I love meeting fellow podcasters and it's just hard to do. So that was just a weird blip where it was like, Pip is going to be here at this exact time. And I thought I have to go say hi because I feel like we're, we're colleagues without knowing it. Yeah, 100%. And it was, it was a weird thing because you confirmed all of the stuff that we'd been telling people like Spotify and Acast and that, but didn't know if it was actual, actually true. Because in the early meetings of getting Pod Bible off the ground, we kept getting asked by all these big companies that we were, were looking to partner with, is this for the industry or is this for the audience? Hmm. And we kept saying that we believe they're the same thing. We believe that every podcaster is a podcast fan and every podcast fan is either a podcaster or a potential podcaster. And I mean, the pandemic has proved that because pretty much every person who listens to a podcast now has a podcast. So it it was our big, big belief. So I think that was another reason it had such an impact on us. It's like, right, there you go. You've come down because you're a fan. You also happen to be someone that we want to be shouting about already. So, yeah, it was a beautiful synergy there. Yeah. No, it was a wicked. It was very memorable meeting you guys. Uh, But when I was on your show, your shit show, you revealed that we'd kind of had a meeting before because you you guys all met as QI elves, um, which meant you, you were there the one time I went and watched a live QI and was lucky enough to come back and and chat to some people and we didn't know each other then so i had no memory of that no no we we didn't say hi even all i remember is you walking in and i can't remember who introduced you but stephen fry was standing at the bar it's post show and there's a tap on his shoulder he turns around and someone says uh stephen this is scroobius pip and stephen immediately 
bows to the floor, drops to his knees, and does a Wayne's World, we are not worthy to you. And I thought, who the fuck is this guy? This is pretty cool. <laughs> Stephen Fry is bowing to this man. And obviously your name was such a memorable name. Yeah. I just thought, okay, Scroobius Pip. And then I later found out who you were. I was quite, I was quite young and new to the UK at that point. Um, yeah. So I didn't have any kind of like cultural understanding of the music artists and stuff. And yeah, that was, I mean, what a, what an introduction. It was a hell of a moment for, <laughs> of, for me that I'd kind of forgotten because I'm kind of awkward in meeting people anyway. So it was an over, overwhelming thing. And it wasn't until you brought it up on your, on your chat that I was like, oh, right. Yeah, shit. That was, that was strange. Cause me and my, my brother had gone along invited by phil jupiter and ah. i think phil wanted to put me and steven in a room together because in thou shall always kill our first big song we i say thou shall not question Stephen fry and that came purely of being a huge fan of qi of all the stuff that you guys do and all that so yeah it was it was a, a wonderful moment i remember Stephen uh, uh, telling me at the time after he'd stopped uh praising me <laughs> that when he first heard the song, he assumed it was having a dig and being sarcastic. And then when he realised it wasn't, and people started to tweet him photos that they'd had tattoos that said, thou shall not question Stephen Fry. That's so funny. Two lads had him on their bum, someone had him on their their thigh. And he was like, it was was an overwhelming moment for him. So yeah, it was... How funny. (laughs) That's so cool. Is that a big thing? Do you get a lot of um, lyrics tattooed on random people? Yeah, right. a fair bit, a fair bit. I always remember the first person who got something tattooed, or the first person I knew about, asked me to autograph them at a gig and then got my autograph tattooed, but didn't tell me that's what they were doing. Mm. So, so I autographed them in, in biro, and it looked awful. <laughs> and then they got that done. I was like, if you'd told me, I would have got a good Sharpie and all this. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's an interesting one. But um, So I guess... I want to get to how you started working on QI. I want to get to how No Such Thing as a Fish came about. But just going into your wiki, there's a few things that, that jumped out at me. And I always know that Wikipedia's, as as you guys, as researchers and fact people will know, it can be incredibly unreliable. Yes, yeah. But just off the bat, that you were born and raised in Hong Kong and a, yeah. a fluent in Mandarin, moved to Australia at 12 and the UK at 19 – Take me through some of that, man, because that's that's a hell of a, a, a experience of cultures, I guess. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, you don't know it at the time when you're born and raised in Hong Kong that that's what it's going to give you. That's a yeah. sort of that's at my age now. Looking back, I can appreciate what an extraordinary upbringing it was, just for the cultural. You were next to every culture in your classroom, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my my parents are both hairdressers and. They met in Hong Kong. Um, They met briefly in England. So my mum was working as a student hairdresser for Fidel Sassoon's um, at a rocking time. Like she used to shampoo the Sex Pistols hair and stuff like that, you know. Amazing. Fidel Sassoon was a real kind of rock and roll hairdresser's place. And um, my dad was living over in Australia and Melbourne. He's from Tasmania originally. So he came over to England and his he met my mum very briefly and they both worked out that they were going to be in Hong Kong at the same time. When they got there, uh, they properly met and properly started dating and set up the salon there. And so they had me, my sister and my brother there in the 80s and early 90s for my brother. And we lived there till I was 13 years old. And 
Yeah, I, I, it was, it was weird. Went to a school that taught Mandarin, even though the language of Hong Kong is Cantonese. So, right, yeah. annoyingly, I'm not as fluent as I'd like to be because effectively it was learning a foreign language in a foreign country. You know, the difference between yeah. Cantonese and Mandarin is so great that yeah. there's just no way that it bleeds into each other. If you're counting to five in each language, E is Mandarin, yup is Cantonese. Like right there, E, yeah. yeah those are just so different. Yeah. So. But the Mandarin bit kind of is still there. I, I, can, I can, it's sort of a sleep dormant. And then when I yeah. speak to Mandarin people, it kind of wakes up. But yeah, so I was, I was there at an international school for 13 years. I, I, I love the, the fact that there was this period where, and it makes perfect sense that it was in the 80s, where hairdressers were kind of touring the world yeah. rock and, and roll stars. Because it was the first time as, as punk and new romantics had kind of come through and blown up into more of a mainstream thing. Hairdressing was an exciting and vibrant thing rather than what it had been for years where it's more a necessity. Exactly. Or or your mum's getting a nice do done for an event or something like that. But other than that, it's not this great expression of personality. So, and in, in, in those days, pre kind of the eighties or whatever, it felt like you go into any hairdressers, you don't go to the, this special, this good hairdressers in town kind of thing. Whereas that became a thing in the eighties, kind of died off a bit, I think, in the nineties and came back again in the last few decades, where there are places in East London and places all over the country where you've got specialists, you've got hairdressers on Instagram, for yeah. example, that have got hundreds of thousands or millions of followers because they're really good at what they do. So yeah, it's a big deal. It's mad to think of kind of touring the world as a hairdresser. And- well, their, their life was wild. And particularly, as you say, that boom that happened. So in Hong Kong, when they arrived there, it was pretty much they were cutting the hair of expats because Hong Kong was still very traditional. This is right. what they've told me. So, you know, uh, Chinese sense of hairstyles um, are quite, uh, you know, it was a very shaped there was like one shape that you might get or a few variations on it. It wasn't wild. It wasn't like what was happening over in the UK. And so according to my parents, it was basically, there were no Western hairdressers there because there wasn't really a demand. And they opened up a salon and they were, I think the second Western hairdressers in Hong Kong to open up a salon there. So all expats. And then according to them, Madonna happened. Madonna exploded into Asia and she was touring and suddenly everyone wanted hair that was different to the norm. And my parents, being the only other Western hairdressers there, took in everyone. So they became basically celebrity hairdressers for the canto scene of canto movies and canto pop. So they used to do like Jackie Chan's hair and they used to do uh, every every major artist who probably has billions of followers who we've never yeah. heard of because they're just not massive here. Yeah. My parents would be the people that would do. And then when people would come into town from overseas, if they didn't bring a personal hairdresser, like musicians, they'd come see my parents. So I remember my dad telling me doing Ringo Starr's beard uh, only months after John Lennon had died and just oh, how wow. scary that was and yeah. how revealing the chat was and and when George Bush Sr. came into town, my mum ended up blow-drying Barbara Bush's hair. Like, they've got all these kind of, like, weird random stories from that time. But largely, it was they were just being invited to all the craziest parties because there was nothing cooler than being the hairdresser at that point. So It's, it's amazing to think that kind of Madonna kicked off the... Yeah. Because the, the, Asia then went on to become the absolute leading f- force in in... in 
style, like like haircuts wise, so much Western fashion and style comes from from what goes on in Asia and what the the boundaries that are pushed with how crazy they go, how big they go, how angular, like Mm. when everything angular came in, so much of that all came from Asia. So I love the thought that right up until then there was probably three male haircuts and maybe four female haircuts. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it went, we can have everything. <laughs> you know, there were, there were no rules. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm sure that's us being too, like, too closed in on it. But I think it was just conservative haircuts. You just yeah. had very yeah. down the line conservative yeah. haircuts. Yeah. yeah. And so, God, they had a crazy, I keep trying to get them to write all these memories down because they are, you know, they used to do fashion shows where they would have catwalks and they would be cutting live on stage and then sending the models down the catwalk. And I've seen the pictures. And these are like, they're like wild concerts. I mean, it was really bizarre. I love that. They're cutting the hair in the distance and then they come and walk the haircut past you. And yeah. you go, oh, they did a good <laughs> yeah, job. Exactly. That's yeah. crazy. So, 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 so what was your point of moving to Australia then after that initial m- m- mix of cultures? Australia itself is its very own culture, but it's yeah. not always been the most varied of cultures, I guess. No, Whereas was... Hong Kong was very much a mixture, a, a melting pot at that time, to then go to Australia, which was very much at that time Australian. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you I know mean, what I mean. I, absolutely. And I was in, I was looking weirdly at a, a photo of my school days uh, that came up as a memory on Facebook the other day. And, you know, I'm basically the only fully Caucasian kid in the photo. Um, right. Weirdly, just because I've I, I saved it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the photo. That's uh, me in the corner there. Yeah. Uh, and then these are all my friends, and most of them have a white dad or mom, and then either a Chinese or Japanese or Taiwanese or whatever parent on the other, either mom or dad. And so for me, culturally, growing up, that's where I felt most comfortable. And then I moved to Australia where it's just very white, and particularly the area that we ended up living in, in Sydney. And people don't believe me, really, when I say this, but I was petrified of white people. And walking into a room full of white people, I was, I was for years, very, very uncomfortable, terrified. And I, I feel like I've been given a, a slight insight into what it's like to have that fear of a room full of white people, because yeah, it was yeah. petrifying. I just thought everyone was going to beat me up. And I, I think probably that is, that's a school thing as well. I remember going to yeah. school and just thinking, but I, I genuinely had never, outside of holidays, I'd never been living somewhere where it was just lots of white people. Yeah. And it was a very, it was a huge culture shock and one that I didn't have to suffer any kind of possible racism that anyone would have. Because in my head, I was like, oh my God, they don't realize there's a secret Chinese guy inside this white exterior that's that yeah. was my mentality i i thought of myself more as i was a hong kong kid and a hong kong kid was a multicultural kid yeah. and weirdly i sometimes i say this if this comes up in chat and people are sort of saying hey you can't say this it sounds like you're being racist it's like i'm not being racist i'm i'm telling the truth i i if i was given the choice in my childhood to be white or chinese i would have picked chinese and yeah. i still feel that way i still feel way more comfortable around anyone if i see a room full of uh, people and there's a group of chinese people that that's where I will naturally feel like I need to gravitate towards because that was my upbringing. That's that's more comfortable for me. It's so it's such a fascinating and unique kind of illustration of of the ludicrousness of particularly in the UK all of the the racism that we've had in the past and kind of again in recent years because that really 
in the opposite way to the most time you're having to convince people of that's an illustration of it's about the inside rather than the outside mm. it's who you are on the inside normally yeah. you're trying to argue look get over the fact this person is black or asian they're born in england they're born and raised all this that and it's kind of the yeah the exact in- inverse of that and you it gave you all of those fears and discomforts of of moving into the white world as such yeah yeah but it's the it's what's interesting as well is because as you get older and you're more distant from it i feel less and less hong kong as a result of just you know i left there when i was 12 years old i've been back three times since then i'd love to go back now that i have kids and and i'm married and introduce my family to my whole upbringing but it's it's a dangerous time and covid and all that so i haven't had the chance but but it has left me as well, as great as it was, it has left me as a bit of a nowhere person because Aussies, when I say I'm Australian, say, no, you're not. Listen, listen to your accent. What's your favorite team? Have you, what's the name of this Midnight Oil song? And they ask me all these questions where it's like, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. And then I've been here longer than anywhere in my life. I've been in the UK since I was 18. I'm now 37. But I don't feel in any way British. I feel yeah. so... But but I'm not Hong Kong anymore either. And what even is that? So I'm I'm a nothing thing, which is I I don't mind it. I think a lot of people get a bit confused by that. Certainly some expat people who have the similar upbringing that I've had. I I quite like it. I I because I do find the real mentality of you know it's been quite interesting, particularly in the whole Brexit period, watching the passion for a nation um, because I I feel so disassociated to having a real passion i feel like i'm an aussie but then aussies reminded me that i'm not an aussie you know so it's constantly anytime i even get that moment it gets pushed out of me it's really interesting because i i can completely relate to you on the feeling comfortable not really needing a nation as such because and again i'm very much born and raised in the uk but i guess many of the cultures that have influenced me aren't british and much of the culture that has influenced me is british obviously but i don't have that sense of great <laughs> british pride are or, you london born um i'm i'm essex born but all my right. family is south london so it's kind of that that mix of the two but yeah hmm. i don't have any of that kind of i, I keep speaking about it recently but <laughs> if you weren't born here you'd you'd l- l- look at how this country is and be like what the hell like again i the thing i keep mentioning is actually breaking down our national anthem that our national anthem isn't about our nation it's about the person who rules us yes <laughs> and it's such stockholm syndrome that we literally have this the line and we all sing it proudly long to reign over us like we're, we're f- fetishizing the idea of being su- subservient to, to this wonderful power and it's like that's such a weird and backwards thing that we're yeah we're, it's it's our great pride yet it's it's all we've known it doesn't seem weird until you actually look at it it was only because i was watching some f- football fans singing along to the national anthem and i was like when you break this down this is so odd that these working class people are praising their leader yes they probably hate their boss and they probably hate having to work and all this, but their leader, the yeah. person who reigns over us, oh, yeah, what yeah. a legend. What that's a legend, so weird. yeah. I tell you what, just on football fans, I because that's the thing when you come to this country and you see the kind of, uh, the there's a lot of aggression, particularly 
the TV persona of fans burning stuff up after fights or just hearing on the streets. You're like, oh, God, there's a group of lads coming, singing, chanting random stuff. Oh, God, move out of the way. And so I love football and I I love that. But culturally, that was a terrifying thing again when I first moved here or even came on holidays. And then on the Sunday that's just gone, I went up the road to our local park and I enrolled my four-year-old in a local football league. And it was two hours long. He's four years old. And it was the most emotional I think I've been in a long time watching my boy listen to his coach as he blew his whistle and teaching them drills and, you know, learning these coordinations. And one of the things I actually got quite emotional about was watching the coaches and just thinking, do you know what? None of these guys are dialing this in because for them, as far as they're concerned, even though this is a four-year-old, this might be the next Beckham or it might be the next Graylish yeah. or whoever, and they care, and they and this is so culturally embedded in the in the blood of of all Brits that I was just watching these guys who probably you know had better things to do on a Sunday, just loving it and just knowing that they're raising the next generation. It was really touching, and it made me kind of view football in a different way to to how I usually would. Completely, I think it's one of the great illustrations of understanding and patience of of this culture which at time we're very short of as we've seen in the last year but coaches coaching young kids knowing that they can't do everything that they want them to do if you know what I mean yet still getting behind it and 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 trying to to get them to that that place I always think when you see a world-class a f- footballer become a manager of a, a, a lower league team it must be tough because to them it's like well obviously what you do in this situation is take it round eight players and smack it in the top corner but the, they haven't got the people who have those skills and I think that's illustrated ultimately in in youth football and in 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 kids f- f- football in particular because it takes amazing patience to be we're doing all this training and all these drills but on the day it's a four-year-old yeah, you know, it's it's not always going to go how you want it to go. Well, and it was it was really funny because there were moments they did an eight on eight game right at the end, and Wilf is a bit too young to be in it. He should be five, really. And then I think his category goes up to like eight years old or seven or something. Like, it's so hard to tell the ages of these kids. And so kickoff went, and this kid just absolutely just dribbled it through the legs of all these kids made and including kids on his own team because they don't know which way they're going to begin with they're just like oh just attack the ball yeah. it's like a royal rumble basically <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. at that ultimate point where the pylon Swan. happens yeah and he made it past them all and he scored a goal and they had to go that was a mate like basically the rule was you had to pass it four times before you could try go for goal so they were having to go that was incredible. And in a normal game, we'd be absolutely shirts off running around, but we can't count it because the rules are. So they, they're living in this limbo place where yeah. they're like, that kicked ass, but it didn't play by the it's, basic rules. But God damn it, that kicked ass. That was great, but, but no. Yeah. Yeah. But don't do it again. But like, oh God, that was good. Yeah. So it was really, oh, it's fun. I, I've forgotten how fun it is to watch. Um, kids playing a sport it's just it's awesome yeah so so how was that adjustment to the UK I guess your early years up to 12 in Hong Kong that's going to be a lot of your culture and personality but 12 to 19 that's Mm. a big block of 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 who we are as as humans of when we're becoming a character and a personality so then 
moving over to the UK, did you come over kind of feeling you know who you are and then you're having to deal with a completely new culture again or no, how did that I, will go? No, that was fine by then. That was, I probably, probably me at 19 was feeling the most confident I'd probably felt in my life in terms of uh, I was on a mission because I'd made a few decisions that meant this was make or break to an extent. Um, yeah. So when I was when I was in Australia, I went to a a sort of an alternative educational school called Rudolf Steiner, and I tend to say it's a hippie like school. Um, yeah. And uh, a lot of people um, online, if I've ever said that before, kind of disagree and say there's, you know, it's it's built on sinister ideology, but kind of everything is when you go <laughs> far back enough. So yeah, exactly. but it's. But for me in Australia, in this small little pocket of Sydney in Middle Cove, it was a very hippie upbringing where I ended up in my final years having to make a decision. Do I want to do the classic route of doing exams, which would give me the results, which mean I could go to university? Or do I want to break from that and spend my final year at school working on a big project where I'd write a thesis on it? It would have a practical thing, but I would end up without the grades to go to a university and my mom and dad didn't go to university neither did their parents or even my uncles and aunties it's a it's a real non-university family so I felt very in my skin making that decision to just say yeah. I'm not going to do that and so I, I finished up my school I, I left without any marks and I was actually only on a holiday over here I had a British passport because my mom's British and I was born in Hong Kong but I was really on a trip to visit my grandmother in Cambodia no sorry not Cambodia Kosovo um, right. she lived in Cambodia for a long time, but, um, she happened to be in Kosovo because her husband, my, my step grandfather is with the UN. And so the ticket that I bought, it was cheaper to buy a ticket that got me to England with a pit stop there rather than just buying a direct ticket. So I got this ticket to England and I was meant to be here for three weeks and I just didn't leave. I, I just liked it so much. And I thought this is where comedy happens as well. I've yeah. been obsessed with comedy since I was 12, really. I was watching the Marx Brothers at 12. I was watching yeah. Fry and Laurie, you know, that far back. I was kind of watching every kind of British and American from the silent movies through to Seinfeld, from, yeah. you know, Morecambe and Wise all the way through to The Office. It was it was everything that I was consuming, which was really hard to get in Australia because, right. you know, it wasn't it wasn't really on TV and it was VHS mainly. And so Australia didn't really, in the way that it does now, have a kind of industry which would be obvious to go into when it comes to comedy. So when I arrived here, I thought, this is it. This is where... Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson live. This is, you know, I'm in I'm in Oxford, which is where my auntie lived, just outside of it. I thought, well, surely I'll just start doing comedy. And within three months, I met John Lloyd, who is the creator of QI, but also produced Black Adder and Spitting Image and Not yeah. the Nine O'clock News. I mean, absolute legend. And when we met, we've we're still we're incredibly close, John and I. We just get each other in a way that um is really rewarding every time we have a chat because we're obsessed with the bigger questions in life and we always get goosebumps when we tell each other a theory about why something is or have you thought about it like that and love it and he i think connected with that even though i was an 18 year old just out of high school without any qualifications he sort of he felt something was right and gave me a gig on qi so it was it was a wow. weird, yeah, my, my first, I, I worked for two months in a remainders bookshop called The Works. 
um, and then QI. That's that's my. That's England. amazing. That's a yeah. hell of a journey. And again, when you weren't even supposed to be here, really, it was just no, kind exactly. of by chance. And, and now I'm working on QI. Yeah. But I kind of, I weirdly, I left school and I guess it's what my parents gave me in terms of belief. Like my parents used to let me stay off school if I said, I'm halfway through this book and I'm really loving it. Can I please stay and just finish the book? And they would sort of go, well, it's not like you're going off to do drugs. You want to sit here and read your dorky Spike Milligan book. But yeah, okay, cool. So I would do that. And so by the time I left school, I just thought I can do, I can do anything. I just need to, just need to do it. That's, that's the key thing is not talk about it, just do it. That's the difference. A lot of people just talk about it, and I definitely did. And arriving in England felt like a doing it place. And so I don't believe in fate, but I do, in a way, feel like I met up with John in that moment at a point where I needed something big to happen, and it did. It came through. I love it, and I'm such a big believer in that. I, I, I genuinely think there's so many things in my career that I'm not I wasn't necessarily the best person even out of my friend group to do this particular thing whether it be music or podcast but I was the one that did it because mm. I did it rather yeah. than wanting to do it or thinking about doing it I just kind of went all right let's give it a go yeah. and and then you get good at it and you get better and better and you learn and you de- develop and yeah but that's what you were saying before you know selling your beard hair that is the difference between you and maybe someone who's still talking about things is yeah. just it, it can be as big as releasing an album or as small as making a decision to like actively put something up online and doing yeah. something weird. It's just yeah. just do the thing and and then let life follow that as opposed to just, you know, philosophizing about what you're doing with your life. It, it leads you down the weirdest roads. It does weird things for you. As you say, NME wrote about it and then that drew yeah. stuff. Yeah. It, yeah. it does stuff. Um, yeah. And so I don't think, I think it's very obvious why you're at where you're at, because from the get-go of anything that I've seen you do in any of the various guises that you've had, it's, it's there's a clear, awesome ambition and drive and a real confidence. Even as you say, you, you can be um, a bit down on it for, uh, not down on it, uh, self-deprecating about yeah, it. yeah. Yeah, but that's that's fine. It, as long as the thing underneath it, as long as the train is still I'm, heading towards its destination underneath, you're just in the carriage. I realised r- r- recently the key is I'm good at ignoring my lack of self confidence because I think I've got I'm, I'm not that confident person, but I'm good at going. Well, we've got to do it anyway. You know, yeah. it's it's yeah. what needs to be done. It might not work, but and I might be sh- shitting myself or uncomfortable, but. That's what we got to do. So, so how, how was it? I mean, speaking of which, of jumping into another country and jumping mm. into this amazing role, how was it to be in the country for a few months and suddenly find yourself working with Stephen Fry, someone you've watched on 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 VHS, admired from afar? How was how was that? It was incredibly surreal, but a few things kept happening. You know that um, scene where it's it's sort of like a small town country. Uh, person, guy, girl, rides in New York with their suitcases off a bus and they look yeah. up at the... Looking they, up at the towers. Yeah, looking up at the towers. The and, and they've got the innocence that it's all going to happen for them. And, yeah. and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. For me, that's kind of what it felt like. I arrived in the country, I put my bags down, suddenly I'm meeting John in the pub and having this moment where he gives me a gig on QI. My first QI paychecks make it so that I can move into my own place with a bunch of other 
uh, people who I'd never met, but it's the first time I've ever lived properly at a home because at this point I was living with my auntie. Yeah. And um, so I go, I, I go to this house and I meet all the flatmates except one who's not there. And they say, yeah, move in. So I move in. The flatmate who's missing comes and I meet him on the day that I move in. And he's like, what do you do? And I said, I've just started this thing with um, John Lloyd uh, called QI. Because QI hadn't been on TV really yeah. at this point. It was series A. It was, I just missed the first series. I was coming in on series B. Yeah. But it was just airing. So everyone was new to it and didn't know what it was. But Will, my my new flatmate, said, oh, uh, my dad knows John because he's um, a guy called John Howard Davies. He um, he works in comedy. He directed Faulty Towers and Monty Python and Mr. Wow. Bean. And I, I just thought, well, this was fucking easy, wasn't it? Simple. Yeah. This was simple. <laughs> just arrive and suddenly i'm living in a house where like and you know i know it's oxford but this was outside of oxford and he had no connection he wasn't at university or anything i don't think he even went to oxford university but so for me it was surreal but also it kind of felt like everything just was happening which i realize is the luckiest thing that will ever happen to me in my life is is those few incidents and the timing of it and 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 uh, full props to john lloyd for taking a chance on a kid with no education to speak of really for this big return to tv he'd been out of tv for so long and everyone still when you mention john lloyd if you work in comedy the idea of working with him is such a such a badge of honor and a a dream that this guy would have had everyone in the industry saying can i work on your new comedy show like please can i be a writer but he had the sort of foresight to say, I want to build up a team that is not your norm. You know, it's the Avengers. I want to, or it's the Suicide yeah. Squad, really, more so. Yeah. It's it's the motley crew of randoms. And none of us had ever worked on a TV show in comedy before. He put together this very bizarre team, most of whom are still in some way connected to it some 15 years later. So... Yeah, it was it was awesome. I mean, it was it was a game changer. And I remember the first time I saw Stephen Fry as I was walking down the studio hallway. And I, at this point, I didn't even know how big a team was because we'd just been writing QI in the background. Mm. Um, and I should say, I wasn't even hired as to be part of the TV show. I was the librarian. So I was given an account at Blackwell's Bookshop in Oxford, and I was just told the series is the letter B, go in there, go to the nonfiction departments, and just anything that begins with B that you think looks interesting, you know, a book on Bridget Bardot, or bats, or beavers, or barnacles. I love it. And I would just bring all these books to the to the uh, counter and spend, you know, 200 quid a time and bring them back and show everyone what I'd found. And I was asked to sit in the QI meeting to take minutes and and get the coffees and stuff like that. But they gave me a seat at a table. And I think it was on the third meeting that I just wrote a few questions myself. And as they went round the table, as it would usually jump over me, I just said, oh, I've got a, I got a question I wrote. And I read it out. And it was never used and it wasn't good. But after the meeting, John just went, Oh well, I guess you're. Uh, I guess you just made yourself a QIL. Well done. <laughs> As in, I just Amazing. he was like, I wasn't going to give you that job, but you've just forced yourself into it. If you yeah. want to do it, it's yours. Um, so yeah, I, I remember seeing Stephen having thought that that was this little table where we were yeah. exchanging facts. This was the only place where the TV show was made, and then we'd go in and make the TV show ourselves, not realizing it's huge crew. So I saw Stephen, and and I bumped into him 
on purpose as we were walking towards each other and went, Hey, Stephen, I'm, I'm one of the, uh, writers now for this thing. And he was like, Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, what a great series. He didn't know. He, he almost went a bit Prince Charles. He didn't know what to say because it was yeah. so random. Like there was yeah. so, such a weird innocence with me not realizing that he, there's a hundred people he's got to talk to on this show. Like, yeah. what was I doing? But he was incredibly sweet. And it was, um, that was the moment where it became a reality. It was like, ah, okay, these are not just statue heroes in my mind anymore. They're real humans. Yeah, it was it's, it was a wild ride. 2003 I, or four, it was, I think. I love it, though. The, the key part of that story for me that I connect to massively is that you wrote a question. Mm. No one had asked you to write a question. No one had said that you'd get a chance to share a question, but you were going in there and thought, well, I'll have this in case it's needed. And I think that's another thing that can really make you make the difference and make that jump. Because, again, if you're comfortable with the fact that you may be writing it for no reason whatsoever, like it's kind of where I am with a few different scripts at the moment. It's like, no one's asked for this script, but I've got this idea and I'm going to put tens or hundreds of hours into it. It may never be anything, but it might be as well. And there might yeah. be a moment where someone wants this moment or that and... Yeah, I think that can be an amazing thing rather than just going, how did I get this job? I'm lucky to be here. Go, how did I get this job? I'm lucky to be here. But also, let's make the most of it. I'm also in a room with all these people so I can now maybe go even further. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I remember because I left QI a few years afterwards and I applied for the BBC to to be a... um, in-house developer of TV show ideas. So I think yeah. I was about 21 at this point and I'd moved to London. And this was this was probably the craziest thing I have ever done because I had a cushy job at QI. They were between series. I'd just made series C with QI and I suddenly just went, Do you know what, I want to live in London because we were in Oxford. I'm going to go off and don't worry, I'm going to stay in contact, but I'll, I'll see you later. And I, the only thing I had was Jimmy Carr was giving me I think about £600 to work on some joke collecting for a book that he wrote called The Naked Jape with Lucy Greaves. Interstitial chapters in that just had, you know, like uh, doctor jokes or whatever. And I I went through a bunch of Jimmy. He gave me his collection of joke books that he has at home. He's got such a wonderful collection. And it was great going through those as well, by the way, because... You know, he's a technician of jokes. So 100%. one of his things is he's reading these joke books, not to, he doesn't rip off the jokes, you know, as they are, but he'll look, you can see he, he he's learning structure and, you know, that's, yeah. that's what he loves. He loves, how does this pay off and so on. And in some cases he would rewrite a completely new joke in the margins of the book based on a joke that was sitting there. And again, you could see zero uh, plagiarism going on it was just yeah, purely yeah. a new joke where he clearly was just testing the mechanic of the setup and play- yeah, payoff i've learned how this works yeah, yeah. and uh, oh let me do that now and then boom you've got like a, a like a real solid one-liner from jimmy um and uh so all i had was 600 pounds trying to collect jokes and i moved up to london and i stayed in a friend's house and didn't pay any rent and um i applied for the bbc 
And the only reason I got the job at the BBC, and I remember John telling me at the time, oh, this is going to be really tough. You know, any BBC job I've applied for, I've never got because there's so many candidates. The only person I know who ever got a job there was Douglas Adams. And the only reason they gave it to him was halfway through the meeting. He was looking through his briefcase and they thought, well, God, this guy's so important. He's got to be somewhere else. But actually what Douglas was doing was looking to make sure he'd remembered to bring his sandwich that he'd made from home because he was worried and so starving that afterwards he'd have nothing to eat. And according to John, he was like, that's that's what got him the gig. And for me, what got me the gig was the person who was working there who had to go through all of the applications had just taken a course where they were saying the standard idea of who could work for the BBC isn't what it used to be. So let's do this little quiz and let's see if you think that they are um, uh, good applicants. And one of the questions that came up was, do they need a university degree? And the person who was looking at my applicant application later said, yes, absolutely, they need a degree. And it said, no, they might not have gone to university, but they might be relevant with experience or what they've written for the job. Yeah. So when my application came up, this person, for the first time ever in their life, went, oh, okay, I'm going to test this idea whether or not someone who hasn't gone to university could be good at this job and put me in the in the pile that led to the interview that led to the to the gig. So that in itself was such a weird, she told me that later. It was like, the only reason you're here is I was testing this idea <laughs> that, you know, someone yeah. without this could be here. Um, and then I remember... You're just an experiment, really. <laughs> exactly. It was just a pure experiment. And then when I was there, I was asked to um, give my opinion of a TV show development. And I didn't realize at this point that you're meant to just say yes to everything and everything's a good idea. And I said, I, th- I think this is a bit crap, isn't it? This idea, like clearly it's missing the idea really of what this show is meant to be. And everyone gasped, except for the boss who went, well, that's really good. Okay. And my suddenly I was given a promotion within that job because everyone was thinking I was going to get fired at that point. Um, this person went, no, it's kind of refreshing to have someone say a nice thing. I feel like I'm getting therapeutic here and kind of praising myself in a weird way um i'm not meaning to i'm just sort of no i love it it makes sense i'm just sort of giving the weird journey of i think that's the key it's finding what makes your voice different and interesting again not to keep bringing it back to uh, to me but that's been so many points in my career where on paper i'm underqualified but, but that's what makes it important that i'm there because of a working class background or because of this or because of that, it's like, right, no, that's why my voice is important here because it's mm. not, I'm not a drama school kid or I'm not a private school kid or or whatever else, which a lot of those rooms are filled with. And yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I love it. I also feel I may have, have been distracting you because for the whole conversation so far, I've been edging to try and avoid a overwhelmingly a bright ray of sunlight coming in my window so i can see it on your shoulder you, now yeah it's, you've it's had to witness me just edge edge up and down my sofa discreetly just going i don't want to distract or, or, or ruin the flow but yeah it looks like you're trying to edge away from the conversation but you can't do that on zoom well, you can't well, shift I'm, to the next seat i mean I've, I've i've edged nearer to my dvd collection and that brings me another kind of fun connection and fact i want to share with you because for years my brother at christmas would get me one or two um comedy dvds yeah it'd often be someone i've never heard of or something i've never seen before and the one that is my all-time favorite stand-up dvd which i watched again only last year 
was Reese Darby. Imagine that. Oh. Which, when I was doing my research, it popped up because it came through a company that you'd kind of set up and the idea was to make stuff that maybe wouldn't have been made. So what would, like, how did that all come about? Because I, I honestly think it's easily my favourite comedy DVD I own. I think it's one of the best sets ever. I think it's just so unlike anything else. And yeah, how it makes me laugh cool. so much. I, so... As I was walking, I'm recording this episode with you in my friend Andy's house. Um, yeah. Andy, who's on No Such Thing as a Fish, because uh, my Wi-Fi is is dodgy at the moment. And as I was crossing the bridge to, to we live next to each other to his house, I was just quickly tr- checking Twitter, and I saw that you tweeted saying, "I've just been narrowing down the funniest people in the world, yeah, and yeah. I've got it as Bob Mortimer, Lou Sanders, and Tim Key. Those are your three. Yep." And as I read that, and I think all three of them are incredibly funny, particularly Lou, who I think is just an extraordinary comic voice. I did want to quote retweet it and say, well, you obviously haven't met Reese Darby because I think that is the funniest human alive. I've never laughed so hard. Just everything in that set. And I've watched his other sets and really enjoyed them as well, the ones that are available. But just every kind of micro movement in his 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 face and it's for anyone who hasn't seen it it's a set that does bring in a lot of physical comedy a lot of miming and things like that but just every expression every exhale it it's a great example because that's what it is about bob mortimer tim key and lou sanders who them on anything i'm sniggering as soon as they're on screen because mm. just everything about them just knowing that that their mind is going off in a direction or seeing when they're thinking of something. That's making me laugh before I've even found out what they're thinking. And Reese Darby is a prime example of that. So Yeah, and Reese is, is as funny in real life and silly and um, sort of cartoonish yeah. uh, as he is in his show. I So I do another podcast, um, which is called The Cryptid Factor, which yes. is me and Reese and our friend Buttons. And that is... You know, I like to think that I have a bit of a presence on the podcast in terms of like I, I'm allowed to speak sometimes, but really what I feel my job is is just to lob in sentences to allow Reese just to go off into this wonderland of noises and impressions and and he, he creates scripts just immediately out loud and he soundscapes the whole thing. It's it's the most joyous thing to do. I the reason I met Reese was I was working for Warner Music after I left the BBC. I worked for a couple of other places, and there was this early day kind of. Do you remember Funny or Die in the way that it was? Yeah. Uh, this was the British version or an attempt to be it, where right. it was called Comedy Box, and Comedy Box was Warner Music just pumping money into an online place to to create new content, find people who hadn't made anything. It's where I met Lou Sanders, for example, yep. when she was just starting as a stand-up. And yeah, so Reese was, I'd, I'd seen, I'd hacked, and this is, I mean, I guess it's back 2010, so it really feels like I was hacking early Flight the Concords episodes. I'd seen a pilot of of the American sitcom, the, the yeah. TV sitcom, and I was watching it because I loved everyone I think had seen the appearances that the Concords had done on David Letterman or one of the late yeah. night shows singing their songs. 
So I came there for the Concords and I left going, who the hell is this Murray guy? Yeah. And the Edinburgh Fringe Festival was just happening. And I messaged Reese saying, hey, I on MySpace, this is where our first contact yeah. was. Um, I work for this thing and we do sketches and I'd love to do some sketches with you. And we met up in Edinburgh and we had a nice chat and we were planning to do some. And then he messaged me saying, hey, listen, I'm afraid I can't do it um, because um, my family is suddenly having to move in a couple days time to America because I've been cast in the new Jim Carrey movie. Yes, man. Wow. And he was like, it's really sudden. So I'm sorry, I have to go. And I thought I'm I'm about to never see someone I consider a genius ever again. So I need to just do something a bit radical. So I, I just wrote back saying, how about this? Would it be possible? Give me half a day and come to where we are with our cameras, which will be in North London somewhere. And let's just film stuff. And anything that we film, if we end up using it, I'll give you £2,000 for that thing. Because this was Warner money. I didn't even know if yep. that budget existed. But I just said, I was like, I just can't let this go. Yeah. And and at this point, Reese is a struggling comic with a new kid. Like, you know, yeah. he, he was going to Hollywood, but he didn't have the money, I don't think, really, to go to Hollywood at that point. No, he, was a, yes. he was a circuit comedian. And Concord certainly didn't pay anything when it first started. Um, yeah. it, was a, it was a real cult commission. So he went, okay, yeah. And so we filmed this stuff and... And it was really fun. And we did end up putting some of it online. And one of the best things that both Reese and I were sort of so hardened by was one of the sketches. Uh, Sharon Horgan said, this is the funniest sketch I've seen online. And obviously, Sharon Horgan, one of the great, 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 great writers of comedy. That was a big deal. So before Reese was leaving, I said to him, listen, I reckon you're probably going to quit stand up now because you're getting into acting. If I can talk Warner into filming your live DVD would you be up for that? And he was like, yeah, of course. So I had to go back and do this big sell because again, Reese wasn't big at this point. Yeah. Concords wasn't even out. And I said, I'm telling you, he's about to be in a Jim Carrey movie. This guy is going to be massive. Let's do this. And they all kind of got excited by it. And we ended up flying out to LA to film it um, with Glenn Wool coming along yeah. the, the stand up. Yeah. And yeah, we did it. At, I think it was the Roxy Theater, I believe. And yeah, I'm in, you'll see... <laughs> At the very beginning sketch where Glenn's picking him up from the airport, I'm in the background on the phone and I, at the very end of it, and I'm very annoyed because they really mistimed this. This was meant to be a, a sort of Easter egg, like after the credits, after the final thing, you know, five minutes of just it playing. I come up right at the end and there's a gag at the beginning that there's someone, Glenn is waiting for a Rice Darcy because Reese had this thing where I'm always called Rice Darcy or Reese Darbo or like something that's not my name. So the end of it is me coming up on my phone going, no, it's Rice Darcy, Rice Darcy, where the hell is my car? And that's that was just a gag that we filmed on the day. And yeah. annoyingly, they put it like he comes off stage and it cuts to me in the DVD doing that. But we ended up having the biggest blast doing it. Kind of like with us talking about podcasting, allowing you just to do random stuff. Yeah. If you if you look at that DVD, every one of the extra features was us dicking about going, we need some extra features. So there's an interview on it where I interview Reese off camera for about eight minutes. And the conceit of it, it's so funny. You, you got to watch it. I mean, it's on YouTube, but it's on your DVD as well. Yeah. Where I start interviewing him and I say, so what's it like um, writing comedy? Where do you get your ideas from? And he's like, ah, oh, no, I knew this was going to happen. And he pulls out his own questions for me to ask him. So I end up just reading his questions. <laughs> but he but he forgets what he's written. So he's really confused by the questions. And there's like codes and stuff. He's like, oh, God, that's hard. Um, 
And we just went gung-ho on it. We just made as many extras as we could and sound effects and, yeah. And then we just stayed friends and I've been traveling all over America with him looking for Thunderbirds, which is a mythical beast, which is like the bird version of the Yeti. And, yeah, you must get him on the show. You'd have a great yeah. app with him. I'd love to have him on. Yeah, it's, it's, as I said, it's amazing. Everything about it, the encore is a work of genius, Oh, yeah, the what? What is it again? It's the it's um, it's, it's him doing a blooper reel essentially right, of yeah. him getting jokes wrong, and it's just it's masterful. I it inspired what I did at the Edinburgh Fringe for for when I filmed it. I did a similar thing where basically because we didn't have enough cameras, my encore was me standing there and letting them get cutaways. So of <laughs> of the crowd looking sad, of the crowd applauding, of all these things you've seen in the actual show you've just watched. Yeah. I'd made a sign that said, I love Scroobius Pip. So I gave <laughs> some on that to hold in the crowd. So you will have seen all of these bits previously in the show. Yeah. And then on the encore, you get to see that n- none of that actually happened because it'd be weird to be doing a poem about suicide and there's a camera on stage filming the crowd to, to see who's crying so yeah yeah completely inspired that. by that but um, that's so good. i'm gonna pass that on he'll be over the moon to hear dude, it, dude. so that. i mean i need to to, to to kind of start to wrap things up i want to just kind of know what's ahead for and no such thing as a fish really we spoke at the beginning about all the creative stuff you've done we didn't touch upon the huge live shows and tours that you guys do because that's just it must be mind-blowing right because as you say you start a podcast you're thinking how can this be more than just four people in a room talking yeah and one way is the vinyl and the book and things like that but another way is doing these huge venues touring theaters and getting to be a community yeah i mean it's 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 so weird and what a what a weird uh, seven years it's been off the back of taking it outside of the room. Um, yeah. The gigs the gigs started really, as you can imagine, really tiny. I think the first gig we did was in, it was in a bar called Aces and Eights where I used to do stand-up. A guy called Harry Deansway used to run the venue and he put on these amazing nights called Shambles where it would be people like John Kearns who at the time was like, you know, is the industry ever going to recognize as a genius doing, I mean, I used to go and do the gigs just so I could be in his presence. He's just, and the loveliest guy generally, it was great just hanging out with him. Um, And so when we, when we started the podcast, I was saying to the guys, I reckon this will work live. Let's, let's give it a go. We'll, We'll book a really small venue and let's try it out. So we did aces and eights. It worked really nicely. And then we just started pushing it a bit more just to see is uh, people interested in coming to a bigger room. And the rooms got a bit bigger and bigger. And at this point, you've got to remember, well, you don't have to remember because you don't know. So this is, you've, got, you've got to learn. Or make sure um, to remember. <laughs> yeah, that the only two people really who had any performance experience was me and Andy. Andy does ostentatious and he's been yeah. in, he's like, he's a proper improvise comedian and i'd been doing stand-up for the last few years but james and anna had never done really anything of this kind before and they didn't have any ambition particularly anna she she was kind of dragged into this podcast really she was just like i don't want to do this and we'd say yeah but try it what if it's often the best people isn't it because again it's a similar thing as the putting together of the the qi elves team there rather than going with all these 
people in the industry who would have died to get the job. They put together people who weren't going to have those egos and those yeah. industry things of trying to fight for position or fight for the limelight. It's a similar thing there. Some of the best people in that podcast thing is the ones who are, are happy to sit back and speak when they can make an impact rather than feel like if you're in the industry, you might be feeling, oh, I've not got any bits in for the last five minutes. I need to get something in or I'm not I'm not getting my coverage. Yeah, exactly. And Anna, you know, she she is the star of the show, like no yeah. question. She's she's just a fantastic broadcaster, even though she would never know it. She's an amazing comedian. I remember there was this point where I was going to gigs and seeing friends like Sarah Pascoe, who were just like, I just think Anna is extraordinary. Like what a funny and just being like Sarah Pascoe is saying that about Anna. That's yeah. that's incredible. And and as you say, like actually the dynamic between the four of us is is really interesting in both ambition and lack of ambition, which meets in a really nice place because I'm so overenthusiastic. I'm I'm basically like you. I'm like, let's release toys, let's cut our yeah, beard off, yeah. let's like I'm I'm the real go-getter, and Anna will be there if ever we're doing uh, an interview or whatever just going oh my god this guy what is going on and she'll bring me down and it's the perfect balance and james is it. yeah like we've all got our own little specialist ways of of wanting the ambition of the show to like andy wanted the show to stop at episode 100 he was like that's it i want the episodes no longer than 30 minutes and you know we're 400 episodes in now and Amazing. and he was like oh okay yeah like i i do love it but we all had a different idea for what this beast was that it's become was going to be and the touring yeah there's there's no there's no kind of like simple answer to what it an extraordinary journey that has been particularly when you get to play venues that you never thought you'd ever step on the stage of particularly in this guys you know we we mm. sold out the sydney opera house what a what an extraordinary room to play for me I got to go back home where my family still live, who've never yeah. seen me do stand-up except for my very, very first gig where I bombed on the Comedy Store stage in Sydney. The second gig they've ever seen is me doing the Opera House. What That was so meaningful. That's, and back in Sydney and now with no nerves walking into the biggest room of white people imaginable oh what a big room of white people oh my god yeah. fortunately the lights are down if they brought the lights up that would have been yeah petrifying um and i remember i, I had school friends come to that who didn't really understand what fish was doing in the uk and so yeah. they were just confused like why are all these people here for a thing that dan's in this is this is yeah. crazy and then you know we got to do places like the Hammersmith Apollo and we've played America and yeah. and it's a journey that I don't think any of us predicted but again for what I was saying before about the four of them and the lack of you know necessarily Anna's initial lack of interest all of us do get excited by all these ideas and it means that we're very gung-ho on when when it really feels right it's like yeah fuck it let's let's play the London Palladium fuck it like like Why and we not? we that the tour that we're on now we just played the London Palladium a few weeks ago and Madness. and we managed to sell it out and what a crazy thing to say it's we didn't think we'd get to that kind of place and it seems to be getting bigger the more that we've been going which yeah is the most exciting thing to to still be in any way relevant as a podcast seven years on when it's so saturated yeah like I don't know how long we have but it's crazy that we've been given this much so far. 
I say that I like God's, God's given it. It's not religious or anything. No, but it's, it is. It's 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 amazing, and you're completely right. It is. It is an industry, and both of us have been in it th- that long now. That it is an industry that a lot of people have come and gone. A lot of great podcasts have been there and then yeah. stopped being there. And there's been a lot of new podcasts that come out of nowhere and are the biggest thing in the world. So to keep being part of that and holding your own is a massive thing. So, I mean, before we wrap things up then, yeah, is there anything that people need to be keeping an eye out for um, or anything you want to push or tell people about? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm working now on my first solo book. And it's, it's a thing that I've been basically passionate about since I was a kid. Uh, the book is called The Theory of Everything Else. And the basic premise is, you know, the theory of everything. Scientists are trying to crack that. The all the all inclusive idea that they can crack what the universe is and the meaning of life and everything in one in one elegant equation. Yeah. That's the theory of everything. But millions of other people around the world are working on their own ideas of why we're here. Other ideas about our do ghosts exist, are aliens visiting us, are plants sentient. So I'm writing this book, which is going to bring together all of the most interesting theories that people have had about why we're here, what's going on, where do we go next, and putting it in places in a chapter where you can hopefully get goosebumps just by the idea of it. And and hopefully the plan is, if I'm writing it correctly, every time you read a theory, it's just going to be a bit like a magic eye where suddenly you see the world very differently just for two seconds. Yeah. And then you return to your own world. But just for that two seconds, it, it gives you an insight into, yeah, what the fuck is going on here? That is weird. And so I'm putting that together at the moment. And if anyone listening knows of any amazing theories that I can include in the book. And this can be anything from theories to do with science all the way through to, as I say, like UFOs and ghosts and the, you know, who killed Kennedy. Like it's, it's a big mix of just ideas that make you think differently. Uh, that's, that's the big new thing that I'm working I on. I love that. That's so exciting. And it's, it's an area that, that fascinates me because it's the area that gave me kind of a new respect for, for religion as weird as as this this might sound, because gr- growing up a, a Catholic, I wasn't particularly into it. And I'd say there was a period where I was quite anti-religion. And it wasn't until in more recent years, being educated by a few other pe- a, a few different people, was realising that so much of religion is trying to theorise the stuff outside of science, the stuff that science can't explain. So things like spirits or souls or whatever else that that seem like nonsense like but that's trying to come up with something that for a long time science went oh no we just don't we we don't know about that we don't know about like like when we sense things and all sorts of other stuff that can't be explained by science the the example my brother gave when he was explaining it was the fact that (laughs) like we can't really explain numbers as such like we can explain numbers as things. Mm. I've got four of these, but four as its own thing is kind of you need other things to explain it. It's this thing that doesn't really exist. It's yeah. a thing in between realities as such. It's it's yeah. a tool, but it's not its own thing. And stuff like that is where so many of the the different religions over the years and different cultures have come up with these things that you can easily write off as oh, it's fucking fairy tales it's nonsense it's this or that it's like no actually that was people trying to explain the unexplainable and yeah f- fair play to them 
<laughs> for kind of having a stab at it. And we stand on the shoulders of these crazy theories. That's yeah. the thing that we forget. Everything that got us to here now are the the mad ideas that we now make fun of. But if they didn't yeah. happen, they wouldn't have had craziness and and real awesomeness, let's say, for people who've like taken us forward. They sit hand in hand. And most of the interesting people in the world believe something nuts or are trying to attempt something nuts <laughs> yeah. while they're doing the other thing. And sometimes they accidentally invent the other thing in the process. I think the guy who invented, uh, I'm going off the top of my head here, but um, phosphorus and lighting matches, mm-hmm. it was because his buckets of urine that he was keeping in a basement trying to turn it into gold lit up and and burst into flames and then he looked at the properties of that and it was like oh that's going to be useful for for lighting fires or whatever it is i mean i've butchered that yeah, I, no, but like no, no, yeah. but the point being is that there's a little bit of crazy in all of us and we're quite often told to suppress that because there's no logical evidence but but thinking differently can be a good thing as well and i i do worry that we're having that pushed down a bit too much at the moment yeah. and it should be celebrated a bit more not when it's dangerous not when it's you know dangerous religious uh, dogma or or cult like things but of course you know like the fact that there's there's a thing i'm putting in the book which is supposedly highgate pond is haunted by a frozen chicken Great. And people have reported over the years that there's a frozen <laughs> chicken haunting it. And so I'm writing this chapter, which is all about quirky hauntings and all that yeah. sort of stuff. And you get to the end of this chapter, and I'm pointing out that people test crazy ideas all the time. And there was once a guy called uh, Francis Bacon, who was a guy, a philosopher back in the day. So not the modern day artist, but uh, old, right. old philosopher. And he was on his way home one night and he was trying to think of the problem about how do you keep meat from spoiling? You've just got, you've just killed an animal. You've only got so many hours uh, yeah. before it's going to go off. What if there was a different way to do that? So the story goes that he was having this thought and he suddenly thought basically the idea of refrigeration. What if you could refrigerate things? And so he jumped out of his carriage and he took the meat that he'd got, and I think it was um, a few. It was like a. It was a dead chicken. He put it in the snow that was outside, and he let it sit there. And his plan was to come back and see did this process work, whereby the meat was still fresh. But unfortunately, the process of going into the park and putting it under snow gave him hypothermia, and he died. Unfortunately, oh, wow. testing a theory, he died basically to test an yeah. idea. And the chicken that he buried in the snow that day still haunts Highgate <laughs> Pond to this day so it goes from a silly story about a chicken that was buried uh, that might be sorry a chicken that might be haunting to that's the chicken that helped us to get to the idea of modern day refrigeration yeah um and you know there's there's gonna as i research more i'm sure there's holes in that story and some people are gonna say it's not true but it makes you think (laughs) differently about these tiny things there's another thing which is that um my friend mark abrams who runs the ig nobel prizes told me which is we don't fully know. You know when you're in a shower and the shower curtain billows in towards you? Yeah. We don't know why it does that. There are people out there yeah. who are trying to work that out. And there's two major theories about why that happens, um, why it sucks in towards you, but both are not compatible with each other, the theories. So we don't know. We don't know something as simple as why a shower curtain billows in towards you. And that's the shit that gets me going. That really gives me just it. a sort of like, ah, oh, isn't that wonderful? Do you listen to 
a, a, to the Blind Boy podcast at all. I mean, no. we're just chatting now. This isn't a podcast anymore. But yeah, <laughs> it's it's absolutely amazing. And every now and then he does an episode that is just a theory on on something. He recently done one called Paddy Dr- Dr- Dracula, and it's right. it's similar to, 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 to what you were saying there. I think you'd enjoy it. He'll just he'll go through history and go right. Well. This happened around that time. If this person heard that story, again, he's got no w- w- way of proving the link, but these two stories make sense that they could influence the creation of of, of Dracula or the idea of, of, of vampires and all these different things. And it's always great because it's exactly as you were saying. It's always delving into documented history mm. And then trying to make a few leaps and connections. Yeah, exactly. You know, going, hang on, you know, it's not written that this person was influenced by that, but it's not beyond imagination that they could have, that would have been part of their either stories going around when they were growing up or or this and that. Yeah, I think you'd find it a fascinating podcast. He's really good with that kind of stuff. I'll so. definitely check it out. I, I, It's that weird thing where you sort of go, oh, should I check it out or should I avoid it so I don't... Yep. accidentally start taking his ideas of them. Of course, and of they course. Get yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah. You've got to slightly stay away from those things that are too close. But um, yeah, so no, so I've, I'm writing that at the moment. And I love it. Um, I've sort of put everything on hold as well. I've sort of left QI, not fish, but I've left QI in order to do it. And um, we'll see where it leads. There's a lot of fun adventures off the back of it and conversations with people who just see stuff differently, who... If you are like me, I'm an agnostic, really. Uh, if you don't take it too seriously, then then it's fun to explore it, just even comically, just even 100%. just the playground of it is so fun to what how it makes you think. So yeah, so that's that's the main thing. Uh, the moment. I love it. Yeah, well, if you've got any good theories, as you were just saying, with I'll those have a ideas, think, yeah, yeah I'll send them I'll, my way. I'll definitely have a think and, and give you a shout. Um, so, so where can people find you on, on socials and whatnot? Because we've not even t- uh, t- talked about... Um, show us your shit your instagram show but uh, yeah i've thoroughly enjoyed every episode of that i've seen so thanks yeah. man yeah i that's that's i'm bringing that back soon it's been on pause just because quite a few things have happened uh outside yeah. um like the tour and and me trying to write yeah. this book but i've built up a really fun community of people there who all still i haven't done the show in a while and they all hang out with each other on discord and even two of them one who lives in a in i think norway and one who lives in the uk are now going out with each other like it's it's Amazing. properly yeah it's really cool so yeah but yeah so on on uh twitter i'm at schreiberland and on instagram i'm at schreiberland as well yeah just at schreiberland s-c-h-r-e-i-b-e-r no one can spell it that's perfect well thank <laughs> you very much for your time man it's been an absolute pl- pleasure i said it's a weird one as i was researching i was thinking i feel like we really know each other well but we've probably spoken a handful of times so yeah. i'm glad to add to that handful no, definitely. And I hope to see you more and more as the uh, days go on, man. 100%. I love talking to you. That was great fun. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There you go. That was episode 432. Hope, you, hope you've enjoyed the first month of 2022. We've rammed out the episodes. I'm counting them now. One, two, three, four, five, six episodes in this month. Man, 
you're welcome, guys. And we've got some great ones coming up next month as well. I've already recorded a few. I've got a few lined up and confirmed. So, yeah, exciting times ahead, needless to say. Right, um, I'm going to go because uh, that's how podcasts work. Um, they end and then you get on with your life, I get on with my life. But um, I'll be back next week, so don't worry about that. So until then, oh, in fact, it's next week. Next week might be the first pod Bible of the year. So you need to be getting excited about that, I'm telling you. Um, yeah, pod Bible is back. So um, at the weekend, maybe. Is it this coming weekend? I'm terrible at dates. But yeah, keep an eye out for all the new pod Bible stuff. And I will see you next week. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.